Okay, good morning, everybody. Do take a seat if you're still uh, milling around to get cracking if we can. Let's just pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we love you. It's so good to be in this place together and to, to worship you, to focus on you, to give you everything we've got, Lord. And uh, we thank you that you've spoken to us. You have revealed your will to us, your character to us through your wonderful word. Thank you, Lord, that you inspired it and you have preserved it over the years against relentless attack. And we have, each of us, your word in our hands. And we ask now that you would speak to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Show us new things about you and about us. And help us, Lord, to have the faith and the willingness to follow you and obey you as a result of what we hear you say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast where the presenter was telling the story of somebody in his church. He is a former imam called Abu. And Abu was down to lead prayers and preach at his mosque in Uganda on the 14th of September 2001, three days after the 9-11 attacks on Washington and New York. And in his prayers, he celebrated the attacks, and his sermon praised the hijackers as heroes and martyrs. And after the, is it called a service? I'm not quite sure. After the service or the meeting, he entered a side room where he and several other people with him heard an audible voice. And the voice said, I am Christ, and I want you to follow me. Well, he, he thought it was demonic. So he rebuked the voice, but it just spoke again. I am Christ, and I want you to follow me. So in his panic, in his fear and alarm, he ran right out of the mosque. And to cut a long story short, he ended up at a church in his town. And that day, he was born again as a new believer in Jesus and baptized. And then a hit squad was dispatched with orders to kill him. Well, they tracked him down, and they attacked him, <clears throat> and they left him for dead. But they didn't quite finish the job. He went into a coma. He was hospitalized, but he made a full recovery. And eventually, he found his way to the UK, where he now worships at a church in the south of England. And I'll share that story with you, because I want you to know that this morning's talk is not academic it's not theoretical. We're going to be looking at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, best known as the Apostle Paul. But this is not just ancient history, still less ancient mythology. This is something God actually did, and it's the kind of thing God still does in our world today. Well, Saul's is one of the most spectacular and one of the most famous conversions in church history. <clears throat> it's certainly one of the most significant. And we met Saul, you may remember, a few weeks ago. He was holding the jackets of a lynch mob that was stoning to death an innocent man called Stephen. 
and he becomes radicalized, Saul, he becomes fanatical. He starts going from door to door, uh, dragging Christians off to prison, obsessed with wiping them off the face of the earth. Now, here's a question for you. How serious do you think you are about your faith on a scale of one to ten? So, so one is any lame excuse to miss church will do. And 10 is, I'm ready to make a 300-mile round trip on foot to advance the cause of my faith. All right, so where would you put yourself on a scale of 1 to 10? Because Saul was a 10. It was absolutely a 10. In today's Bible reading we're going to have in a minute, he was walking for a week from Jerusalem to Damascus to hunt Christians down and throw them behind bars. That's how passionate he was about his faith. And I wonder sometimes, do we cherish our comfort and our security more than those who are enemies of Christ? That's quite a challenge for me. See, Saul at this point, uh, just before Acts chapter 9, was an obscure junior cleric. He was, he was a nobody, really. But today, 2022, he figures in the historian Michael Hart's book, The 100 Most Influential Persons in History. And Michael Hart puts Saul of Tarsus in at number six. So that dramatic elevation from non-entity to the sixth most influential person in the history of mankind to ever live is down to what happens in this chapter, Acts chapter 9. So let's read it together, shall we? Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. I love that, that Straight Street. Great. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, 
I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Some people like church because they just see themselves as a religious sort of person. Now Saul, before his Damascus Road encounter, was a very religious sort of person, but he hated church. And he hated church because he wasn't converted. Many people say, well, I'm not religious, but I see myself as spiritual. Spiritual, but not religious. And Saul saw himself as spiritual too. But crystal unicorns are spiritual. And if people say to me, well, I'm a spiritual, I want to say to them, well, that's nice, but are you converted? That's more important. And Jesus said the same sort of thing in another way. He said, you must be born again. You must. It's essential. Conversion is essential. The Bible says, if you're a Christian, you are a new creation. A new creation, something entirely new. Well, you might be thinking, am I converted? I've never had an amazing crisis experience like the one we've just read. I've never been blinded by a heavenly light. I've never fallen to the floor. I've never heard an audible voice, spiritual, supernatural voice of God. And maybe you grew up in a Christian family and have never known a time when you rejected Christ or ever doubted your Christian faith. So what does it mean to be converted? And how do you know if your Christian faith is for real? Well, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture together because Acts 9 tells us six essential things about conversion. And the first thing I see here is this. Conversion is always God's initiative. It's always God's initiative. So did Saul bring about his conversion? Well, no. 
He had no prior interest in following Jesus at all. In fact, the complete opposite. And then God, in his sovereign grace, knocked him off his feet. Now, Christians sometimes say, you may have heard this, I found the Lord. And uh, the German evangelist Reinhard Bonker once said, well, okay, but the Lord was never lost. We were lost, and Jesus found us. And what we find throughout the Scripture is that nobody is able or nobody is even inclined to climb their way up to God. Nobody. It's always God who comes down to us when we were simply unable to help ourselves. Indeed, when we didn't even know we needed help, God took the initiative and came to us first. It may feel like, to us it may feel like, we decided to become Christians all by ourselves. But in fact, the Bible says it's not just that we were spiritually disinterested before we, be, we became Christians. The truth is we were spiritually dead and God had to make us alive in Christ. God takes the initiative. So a man called Tony Bullymore, um, age 56, he was um, one of Britain's most experienced yachtsmen. But on the 5th of January, 1997, his 60-foot boat, Exide Challenger, capsized in the seas between Australia and Antarctica. And he was in the middle of the Vendée Globe round the world yacht race. Well, the keel of his boat, that's the thing that sticks down underneath the bottom, it snapped off in a raging storm and um, <clears throat> destabilized the boat. The boat turned over. And in his book, which he calls Saved, Tony describes being stuck for four days in a dark, noisy, wet, and cold, upside-down world. Fifty-foot waves were crashing against the sides of his boat relentlessly. The temperature was just above freezing, and he was over a thousand miles from the nearest land in South Australia. All his food supplies were lost except one bar of chocolate. It's all he had to go on for four days. And he suffered seasickness. And he only had this air bubble between the bottom of the boat, upturned boat, and the water level uh, to breathe. That's all he had. Well, days passed. And his air supply began to run out. And then in desperation, when everything else had failed, he started to pray. And he started to pray that he, he wasn't a religious man at all. He started to pray that he would be rescued. What he didn't know is this, that three days before he began to pray, the Australian Navy had noticed that his boat was not making progress with their GPS uh, positioning, and they dispatched a rescue team to him. And with death by suffocation only a few hours away, he suddenly heard a tapping noise on the side of his boat. And of course, it was the Australian Navy. And his first words after being rescued were these, thank God, it's a miracle. He said, I feel like, this is interesting, I feel like I've been born all over again. I feel like a new man. I have been brought back to life again. 
And that is what every conversion is like. If God sent his son on a rescue mission to us long before we knew we were in the peril of hell. There's a divine initiative in conversion. And the second aspect to conversion is that it's a personal encounter. A personal encounter. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. In every conversion, there has to be some kind of encounter with the Lord. Have you had one in your life? Have you had an encounter with Christ? doesn't have to be spectacular or remarkable like Saul's was. I've, um, just, I've just finished this week a biography of the, um, the Oxford Don and uh, author C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And Lewis describes his conversion in the most underwhelming way you could imagine. So I'm going to quote what he says. <clears throat> he says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen College, Oxford, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. No wow factor there, is there, at all? But it was unquestionably uh, a divine initiative leading to a personal encounter. See, at first, C.S. Lewis, he didn't want it at all. And then he couldn't ignore it, and in the end, he couldn't resist it. When was your turning point in your life? The third mark of an authentic conversion is it must lead to a change of heart, a change of heart. My turning point came in the summer of 1979. I remember just feeling so weary and so uh, burdened by my vain and futile life up to that point. And I remember just welling up with tears. I've never cried so many tears in my life. And I'm, I remember saying to God, this is it. This is it. Everything is going to be different from now on. I want you to be the center of my life from this day. And whatever anyone says, no matter how discouraging it's going to be, I am never turning back. I'm going to be a Christian for the rest of my life. When I got home, my dad said, oh yeah, I had that when I was your age. Everyone goes through a little sort of, you know, religious experience, I thought, this is, not, this is not temporary, Dad. This is for life. And I knew I had changed. It wasn't a kind of lifestyle revision. I wasn't just changing the furniture in my inner world when I became a Christian. It was an unconditional surrender. That's what it felt like for me. And when Saul is given instructions from the Lord here, the Lord says to him, look, go into the city, and then you're going to be told what you've got to do. All Saul's resistance is gone. His change of heart is evident right from the start. And it's evident in the fact that his initial plan to round up Christians and lock them up 
is completely forgotten. No more mention of it on him. And we know that Saul was truly converted, not because he had a supernatural light on the road, not because he fell to the ground, not because he heard an audible supernatural voice, but because of the supernatural change of direction in Saul's life. That's how we know he was converted. And he says yes to Jesus here, and he's never the same again. Somebody quoted the Archbishop of Canterbury this morning. I'm going to quote another one. As another former, former Archbishop of Canterbury once said this, that only three human individuals are mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, which is a kind of early summary of Christian belief. The three individuals are Jesus, the one who said yes to him, Mary, and the one who said no to him, Pontius Pilate. And fundamentally, brothers and sisters, our lives boil down to this one binary choice. Have I said yes to Jesus or am I saying no to Jesus? What's your life saying to Jesus? Yes or no? There's no middle ground. It's either yes or no. The fourth thing about conversion is that it gives you immediately a new identity. Now, Ananias' description of Saul here is of a man who inflicts harm on Christians and is determined to persecute any of them that he can find. Spot on. That is who Saul is. Or rather, that is what he was. Because now he's got a new identity completely. Now God describes him as my chosen instrument set apart to preach the gospel to nations and kings. Wow. Whole nations are going to be hearing about Jesus. Whole nations are going to be coming to faith. This is amazing. We really like that bit. The next words are these. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. We like that a bit less, don't we? But if you're a Christian, you are not only enabled to live in the glorious light and power of the resurrection, you are also empowered to walk the way of the cross, which involves suffering. It's part of the package. If you're converted, you will almost certainly at some point in your life face discrimination or contempt or sarcasm, and in other countries, much worse. If you're thinking of becoming a Christian this morning, I'll level with you now. Some people are just not going to like you. That's the way it is. But I promise you this, God will never leave you. And Jesus said this, no one will take away your joy. No one. And Saul himself summed up his life later on as the Apostle Paul. He said, suffering, but always rejoicing. Suffering, yes, but my life is always full of joy. If you're converted, your identity has changed. You are not who you once were. You are now a child of God. And there's nothing that gives more joy than knowing you have a heavenly Father who loves you. Fifthly, conversion gives you a new family. One of the first things you need after getting converted is Christian friends to help you take the next steps. See, anybody can profess faith in a moment of emotion, but the evidence of genuine conversion that I look for 
is that you want to relate to a new family. I love the way Ananias welcomes Saul here into the fold. Uh, If anyone had reason to be wary of this man, Saul, it was Ananias. But he places his hands on him. He imparts the healing power of Jesus to him. And when his words are full of affection, brother, Saul, he says, God, new brother. And I don't think that anything in all of human relationships come close to what we share as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Between Ananias and Saul, all the fear that was there before has vanished. All the barriers are down. All the violence of the past is forgiven and forgotten. All the past is just made irrelevant with just two words, brother, Saul. It's beautiful. Saul had spent three days blind, alone, taking no food or water, stuck in a foreign city. And Ananias baptizes him, cooks him up some breakfast, gives him a towel, makes sure he's okay, connects him with other believers. Because now we're family. And now everything's different. A few years ago, uh, a married couple used to travel around Iran, distributing Bibles up and down Iran. It was illegal and uh, very dangerous work to do. But God blessed their faith in some really amazing ways, extraordinary stories. And one day, for example, while driving, they stopped off at a a shop, kind of petrol station shop in the middle of nowhere, to buy some water. And as they pull up, they notice there's this kind of Mujahideen warrior, soldier type, standing outside the shop with his AK-47 rifle. And the wife says to the husband, do you know, I think the Lord's just spoke to me. I think the Lord is saying we should give that man a Bible. So get one out of the boot and give it to him. So the man gets out of the car and he walks up to the shop. He buys some water and then slowly gets back into the car and he drives off without giving the man a Bible. And she says, where do you think you're going? What do you think you're doing? Why didn't you give that man a Bible? God has spoken to us. I think we should obey his voice. Well, they have a heated discussion on the road about the wisdom of doing that, but she keeps insisting, I think God has spoken to us. You get a turn back. So he slams on the brakes, does a three-point turn, drives back to the shop, really annoyed. And uh, he pulls up, he looks at his wife, and he says, darling, if this goes as badly as I think it will go, uh, I'll see you in heaven. And he opens up the boot. He picks up a Bible in Farsi, Iranian language. And he walks up to this very tall, very scary looking man. And he clears his throat and he says, Sir, this is the Holy Bible. It's a gift for you. And he turns and he heads back to his car, walking as quickly as he can 
And then he hears a thud. And with his heart in his mouth, he looks around thinking, this is the last thing I'm ever going to see. But he finds this Mujahideen militant on his knees with tears running down his face. And he says, three days ago, I had a dream. And in my dream, a voice told me to come to this very spot and to wait outside and to keep waiting until somebody came to give me the word of life. He said, I've been standing here for three days, waiting. You give me the word of life. How can I ever thank you? And there, in an instant, this scary-looking Mujahideen man with his AK-47 Kalashnikov, who would, pre who would previously think of nothing of using violence against people like us, becomes a precious and loved new member of our family. That is what God does. Sixthly and finally, conversion gives you a new purpose. Our passage ends with an energetic new preacher in Damascus telling people that Jesus is the Son of God. What a transformation. People say, wait a minute, isn't this the guy who caused mayhem in Jerusalem? Well, yes, it is. Same man. But if you have a new heart and a new identity and a new family, you just can't keep doing the old things any longer, can you? See, so whenever somebody is converted, it's a summons to serve the King of Kings. New purpose. A man called Des Johnson. Des spelled D E Z. Great, isn't it? Des Johnson from Scotland was a doorman, he was a bouncer. Uh, he was quite a violent guy. He took lots of drugs. He says, I was a cocaine addict. My life it revolved around fighting, taking drugs, partying, and living in that cycle, round and round. One night, he said, I had a, taken a massive overdose. I felt like I was having a heart attack. My heart was jumping out of my chest. I cried out in what I didn't know then was a prayer to live. And I woke up the next day and I never touched cocaine again. And after that, Des kept meeting Christians. You see, God takes the initiative. God goes before. See, one Christian in particular was, uh, was called Fiona. Now, Fiona was great. Fiona really lived out her faith. And he quite fancied her. So he asked her out a few times on a date, but she kept saying no, not because she didn't fancy him, because she did. She said no because he wasn't a Christian. So it was a non-starter for her, good girl. She gave him a Bible, and she began, he began to read it. He says this, I started tearing through it, hopefully not literally, tearing through it, trying to find something, and I ended up finding Jesus. Suddenly, he said, my whole life made sense. Well, he asked Fiona if she would take him to her church. She said, yeah, that would be great. So they went together, and he heard about Alpha. Alpha, if you don't know, it's a 12-week it's a course for inquirers. You can ask anything you want, and we have one here. It uh, starts properly on Wednesday night. Ask for more details afterwards if you're interested. On Alpha, says Des, I met Jesus. There's the personal encounter, right? 
And he says, it changed my life. I was this drug-fueled, violent person, and now I love people, and I love God. I just want to share my story, he says. Well, Des is now a husband to Fiona. Ah, and a father to their children. And this is how Des sums up his complete transformation. He says this, I have changed from a violent, loveless drug addict to a man who is happily married and full of love. I'm now running Alpha courses for all types of people, from gangsters to grannies, and I'm seeing their lives changed. See? New heart, new identity, new family, new purpose. This is just what God does. So as I draw to a close, what do you think God is saying to you today? What's this all about for you today? Are you, as Saul was, trying to earn your way to heaven through religion? It doesn't matter if you've been coming to church all your life or whether this is the first time here this morning. Can you categorically answer yes to this question? Are you converted? If the answer is no, why don't you change that today? Come to Christ today. Big welcome for you if you do. If the answer is yes, yeah, I am converted, then I'd like you now to think of the person you know who is least likely to come to faith in Christ. Just think for a minute. Who do you know who is least likely to become a Christian? Do you believe that God can soften the most hardened heart after reading about what happened in the life of Saul of Tarsus? I do. Look how God turned his life around. Are you willing to pray for that person and tell them about how you came to faith? Is God challenging you to step out and take a risk like Ananias did? He could have stayed in his comfort zone. Not up for that at all, but he got up and went to Saul and the rest is history. Is today the day you say to God, I'm at your service. Let's go. Let's pray. Well, we thank you for your wonderful word. It's just so good, Lord, and it's so instructive for us. Thank you for all you teach us through it. And Lord, this is not just for our information. We believe you've written this down for our transformation. And so we ask, Lord, that we would leave this place different than what we were like when we came in. And that your word would have its transforming effect on each of us. And if you have a decision that you need to make before God now, be open to whatever he wants to say to you. Just remember that nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. And whatever that transaction is that you know God's whispering to you about, just make that now in the moments of quiet that are going to follow.